0: Oh hey, welcome back to Antisocial Studies. Get ready for things to get super depressing. Last episode, people danced while the economy crumbled, and today we need to figure out what happened next. How do you bring an entire country out of total financial collapse and unemployment? No, really, I'm asking for us right now. I mean, if you're a Democrat, you would probably say something like, well, the government needs to spend like a crazy amount of money investing in social services and programs to get people back to work and regulate that banking industry. And if you feel that way, ooh, you're gonna love this episode. Today's episode is all about the 1930s and the New Deal, or saving Mr. Banks. I'm Emily Glenclair, settle in and let's go back in time. Act one, Hoover Tried. I mean, before we just hop over to FDR, as many of us really want to do, we need to talk about Herbert Hoover for a minute. Oh, poor Hoover. His name became synonymous with the government's failure to react to the Depression. Like, slums were nicknamed Hoovervilles, and there's a whole song about him being awful in Annie, but I do want to redeem Hoover slightly. For one, I really just want to show you that Hoover tried, like he really did try to do some things that were pretty groundbreaking to stop the economic decline. But in hindsight, those things were just not nearly enough. And secondly, it's important that we understand that up until this point, the federal government was almost entirely hands-off from the economy, especially when it came to people's personal finances or job status. The federal government had just amended the Constitution to allow for an income tax, which, before that, had been seen as too much of a federal overreach. Not to mention that Harding's return to normalcy returned us basically to the Gilded Age, so that often obscured what little economic regulations the progressives have been able to put into practice for the last 20 years or so. So, with that context, let's see what happened. The most damaging part of the economic decline was the failure of the banks. By 1932, one out of every four banks had permanently closed, and just one year later, one-fourth of the workforce was unemployed. And even before the stock market collapsed, the United States was already a country of haves and have-nots. In 1929, two-thirds of all families earned less than $2,500 a year, while just 5% of the households in the country earned 30% of the nation's income. Feel like i can just hear bernie screaming through this entire episode unemployment on top of pre-existing poverty led to collapse bread lines and soup kitchens opened up people were evicted and set up in shanty towns called hoovervilles so-called hobos became a fixture of most cities hitching rides on trains to find work And I should say that not every American in the 1930s instantly became poor, but everyone's standard of living dropped significantly. Even if you had money left to buy things, stores were closed, and middle-class families who hadn't had to worry too much about money on a daily basis suddenly had to tighten their belts and live according to a new normal. A lot of immigrants also left the United States, although hmm, a lot of these were, (laughs) how should I say this, involuntary The federal government just ramped up its deportation efforts and instituted so-called repatriation drives to try to convince new immigrants to just return to their country of origin. In the American Southwest, people who looked Mexican were rounded up and sent across the border regardless of their citizenship status. During so-called Mexican repatriation, between 500,000 to 2 million people were deported, and it's now estimated that up to half of those people were American citizens. As always, farmers had it the worst during this time period. In addition to man-made disasters, the Great Plains were experiencing natural disasters on a regular basis. After decades of homesteading and converting land carefully maintained by indigenous groups for centuries, plus a decade of unusually high temperatures and low rainfall in the 1920s, the topsoil eroded into layers of dust. Throughout the 1930s, the Great Plains had on average 50 dust storms every year. Through all of this, the American entertainment industry rolled up its sleeves and thought, I know how to help, we'll make movies. (laughs) Oh, Hollywood, so out of touch. But, I mean, really, Americans desperately wanted to escape the reality of the 1930s, and so, as counterintuitive as it seems, the movie industry boomed during the 1930s. 60 million people went to the movies each week. In 1937, the first feature-length animated film was debuted by Disney, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In 1939, both The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind premiered, with Hattie McDaniel becoming the first African-American to win the Academy Award. The radio business also boomed, with many shows like The Guiding Light, sponsored by laundry soaps. Get it? Soap operas? Authors didn't have to look too far to find tragedy, either. Like, John Steinbeck made an entire career writing about dusty landscapes and people trying to get by. Photographers also became important documentarians, bringing the full nature of the Great Depression into the homes of those less affected. In 1936, Time Magazine introduced a new weekly photojournalism magazine called Life, and photographers like Dorothea Lange and Margaret Bourke-White, armed with new 35 millimeter cameras, traveled around the country collecting images of migrant shelters and poor farmers. Fine art also reflected the times. The regionalist school of art rose, emphasizing and glorifying traditional American values with a focus on the rural Midwest. Most famously, Grant Wood's American Gothic became an instant classic in 1930. And many people now see this painting as satire, poking fun at like uptight Midwesterners. But Wood actually intended for this painting to be a reassurance and to put a spotlight on hardworking farmers trying to get by. Okay, so things were bad. What did Hoover do? Well, Hoover actually did a lot, if you were to ask Republicans during his presidency. Hoover was a poster child for 1920s republicanism. He was from the Midwest, Iowa. He was the first president to be born west of the Mississippi River. He was part of the first graduating class from Stanford, and he took up a lucrative job as a mining engineer. He was incredibly smart, he was hardworking, he was respected, he eventually became a multimillionaire. During World War I, Hoover had used his time and resources to organize food and supplies to be delivered to Europe. When the U.S. entered the war, Wilson appropriately appointed him to head up the Food Administration, where he encouraged Americans to conserve food wherever they could so that meals could be shipped over to Europe. Hoover personally received thousands of letters from people across Europe thanking him for the free meals that became known as Hoover Lunches. Oh, I bet he's really sad that that's the Hoover nickname that didn't stick. He served Harding and Coolidge as Secretary of Commerce throughout the 20s, and while the decades saw the economy go mostly unregulated, Hoover took an active role in promoting new industries. He helped get the new radio broadcasting and civilian aviation industries off the ground. (laughs) It's a little airplane humor for you. And he laid the groundwork for a massive dam on the Colorado River in the southwest. It would be completed in 1936 and named the Hoover Dam. Damn, this guy gets a lot of stuff named after him. Whoa. And then in like a, no, don't go in the basement kind of way, Hoover ran for and was elected president in 1928. (laughs) What a terrible year to be elected president. At his inauguration, he said, oh no, quote, we are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. Shoot, I guess we can blame Hoover. He kind of jinxed like an entire nation. When the Great Depression hit, Hoover was in a bind, right? His entire philosophy was based on the idea of rugged individualism. He was a capitalist who believed that the best thing for the economy was for the government to stay out of it and let individual Americans get to work. Even with this background, though, he recognized that times called for extreme measures. For one, he pushed Congress to lower tariffs to encourage overseas trade, but Congress ignored him and did the exact opposite, and passed the highest tariff in American history, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff. Obviously, as the way tariffs work, other countries were offended, and so they passed their own high tariffs to retaliate, and global trade basically came to a halt. Great, thanks Congress, appreciate it. Hoover did a lot, especially relative to the previous president's role in the economy. He organized conferences to get heads of banks and other industries in the room with labor leaders and government officials. He increased funding for public works. He asked the Federal Reserve to put more money into circulation so that banks could loan money to businesses, but the Fed also ignored him and refused. He went ahead and created the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that lent $238 million to businesses. He signed the Emergency Relief and Construction Act that gave $1.5 billion to public works and $300 million in emergency loans to states for direct relief. This is a big deal. This was the first time in American history that the federal government just gave money to citizens. But all of this was just still not enough to jumpstart the economy. And as we so often do, Americans blamed the president for all of their problems and other political parties capitalized. The Democrats did well in the 1930 midterms, and actually the American Communist Party had a moment to shine. They organized hunger marches on Washington. They had 1,200 people chanting, feed the hungry and tax the rich. But the most famous protest of this era came from the historically untouchable group in American history, veterans. So after World War I, Congress promised each veteran a $1,000 bonus in 1945, The thinking was that this was right around when many of them would be around the age of retirement, so it was kind of like a promised pension. And when the Depression hit, veterans were like, hey, you know what? Like, I think I would like that money now, please. In 1932, over 1,000 veterans showed up at the Capitol wearing ragged military uniforms. They named themselves the Bonus Army, and they set up camps in D.C., Eventually, 15,000 people joined this movement, but Congress vetoed the bonus bill, and Hoover refused to meet with the protesters. Again, these are American veterans who had fought in World War I. In July, Hoover ordered the shantytowns that had been set up to be cleared. Police were ill-equipped to handle the crowd, and so they ended up firing into the crowd, killing two war veterans? And, like, Hoover debated whether or not to send in troops, but his army chief of staff thought, nah, don't worry, I got this. So he sent in cavalry, infantry, and tanks to clear the camps. Again, this is the U.S. military sending in troops against unarmed military veterans asking for help during the Great Depression. It was not a good look for the Hoover administration. 700 soldiers tear gassed the crowds and burned their shacks to the ground. And who was that Army Chief of Staff you might be asking? Well, you weren't asking, but I want you to ask that. Oh, yeah, that was none other than the eternally infuriating General Douglas MacArthur. Oof. Get ready for a few episodes of me just constantly talking about how much I don't like MacArthur. And that's like the first in a long line of moments when MacArthur is going to ignore all orders and be like, Eh, I got this. Don't worry about it. Okay, so all this to say was that by the 1930 election, Hoover was quite unpopular. Republicans were just swept out of power across the nation, and in Washington, the granddaddy of all Democrats entered the Oval Office. Act Two, The First New Deal. Okay, wait. Let's just wait. Before I even talk about FDR, just allow me, like, a minute or two to wax poetic about my favorite historical figure ever. Like literally of all time. An ode to Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor, the first lady of my heart, you were walked down the aisle by Teddy Roosevelt to meet your husband whose career you saved, the husband who had an ongoing affair with your social secretary, When you learned of his unfaithfulness, did you weep or run away? No. You used it as leverage to carve out an equal place for you in the relationship. You became Franklin's voice on the campaign trail and you had his ear. You reminded him to include women and minorities in his New Deal programs. You only gave interviews to female reporters, prompting every major newspaper in the country to immediately hire a woman. You learned to fly a plane with your friend, Amelia Earhart. Who needs men? Not you. You had a loving friendship, and most likely a romantic one, with your friend and journalist Lorena Hickok. During the war, you built a garden at the White House to show families how to help the war effort, something that wouldn't be replicated until another First Lady, a kindred spirit named Michelle, would use it to convince Americans that vegetables are not disgusting. And did you retreat from the public when your husband died and you were no longer First Lady? (laughs) Of course not. You were appointed the first U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. You wrote the frickin' UN Declaration of Human Rights. You became the mother of the Democratic Party for decades. Any candidate who wanted to rise to the national stage had to have your approval. You took on and beat the literal mafia when they intimidated your son out of running for governor. At the end of your life, you were still working for equality. You chaired JFK's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women, and you drafted what would become the Equal Pay Act, although you didn't live to see it signed into law. You were criticized for your appearance and your power, but you never let that change your path. You are still the most influential First Lady in history and a true American icon. Oh, I love you, Eleanor, but now I'm told I have to go talk about your husband for some reason. Eleanor's husband entered the White House at 50 years old, and he wouldn't leave it until he died 13 years later. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had risen up through the ranks of New York politics until he became Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Wilson, a position also held by his distant cousin, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, hey, Teddy! I can just never let go of Teddy. He's going to show up in all of these episodes. But that wasn't the only connection to TR. He also married Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Eleanor Roosevelt. So Eleanor didn't even have to change her last name, which was nice of him. Yeah, they were like distant cousins. In 1921, FDR contracted polio and had to retreat from politics. He all but disappeared from the public eye, except for the work done by his wife Eleanor to keep him in everyone's minds throughout the 1920s. In 1928, as Hoover was getting elected president, FDR became the governor of New York. And four years later, he won in a landslide promising, quote, a new deal for the American people. When he became president, most of the banks across the country were closed, and one in four workers were unemployed. In his inaugural speech, he famously told the crowd,
1: Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is
0: fear itself. Most people, side note, think that comes from like a World War II era speech, and it's not. It's about the fear of poverty and the Great Depression. Now, if Hoover tried, then FDR, like, really tried. (laughs) He didn't enter the White House with a clear agenda or ideology, but he told his cabinet members, quote, above all, try something. The New Deal is kind of like the government just throwing money and acronyms at a wall and just seeing which ones stick. So FDR was faced with a few options, and he intentionally surrounded himself with advisors who disagreed with each other in the hopes of finding some decent compromise. So should the government continue what Hoover had been doing, work with businesses to try to regulate wages and production like they might in wartime? Or were businesses the problem, and they should be broken up and regulated? Or should the government just take over and run certain parts of the economy itself, go full socialist? I mean, that wasn't off the table, considering that democratic socialism was on the rise in Europe at the same time. So FDR took it step by step. But he took those steps at a run (laughs) like instead of attending inaugural balls, he called in his advisors to start writing legislation on the day he moved into the White House. In his first 100 days in office, Congress passed 15 major acts of legislation. That is insane. And it's now the bar that every other president is measured by their first 100 days in office. So these acts just from the first basically three months are known as the first New Deal. Now, I could go into detail about all the agencies and administrations and recovery organizations created under the New Deal, but I really don't want to. (laughs) Like, it's so many acronyms and it's so boring. So I'm just going to take you through the highlights, especially parts of the New Deal that still impact our world today. So his first challenge, like Hoover, was to save the banks. Most of them across the country had declared a banking holiday, (laughs) that's a nice euphemism, to prevent another run that would take the last of their reserves out. And so within his first week as president, he passed a law that would allow federal examiners to survey each bank in the country and allow those deemed financially sound to open. And he explained all of this on the radio in his famous fireside chats.
1: My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. I recognize that the many proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations, and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen. I owe this in particular because of the fortitude and the good temper which everybody has, with which everybody has accepted the inconvenience and the hardships of the banking holiday. And I know that when you understand what we in Washington have been about, I shall continue to have your cooperation as fully as I have had your sympathy and your help during the past week.
0: FTR was incredibly effective at communicating to the public. He spoke really plainly and openly about what the government was doing and why. And it worked. When the banks reopened the next week, people lined up to put their money back into the banks. After this band-aid, he went on to pass the Securities Act, which created the SEC to regulate the stock market, and the Glass-Steagall Banking Act, which separated commercial banking, the everyday banking that like you and I probably do, with riskier investment banking. This also created the FDIC to ensure bank deposits and increase confidence in the banking system. And just this on its own was a massive increase of federal power. Like, up until this point, all bank regulation had been left up to the states, and the stock market was essentially unregulated. But as FDR put it, this is why we can't have nice things. After getting the banks stabilized, he wanted to focus on individuals who were struggling. So he created an organization to buy up people's mortgages who were late on payments, restructure their loans, and lower their interest rates the Farm Credit Administration gave farmers money to refinance their mortgages at lower rates and keep their farms. And all of this is brand new. Like, the idea that the federal government would step in and directly help individuals pay their mortgages is just unheard of. But FDR went even further. In the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the government paid farmers to not produce certain livestock or crops. Let me just say that again. Over two years, The government gave farmers over $1 billion to not farm. So the idea was it would help get supply down, which is good in the long term, but it also meant that prices went up, which made people, you know, not happy during a depression. And the Supreme Court eventually struck down the AAA as an overreach of federal power. They're like, all right, you can't pay citizens not to do something. That's just not the way this works. Finally, the last, like, branch of the First New Deal was trying to get people working. He created a ton of organizations, all with different acronyms, but the gist was that the federal government hired young men to build infrastructure and complete other public works projects that the government made up for them. It's like if you're a parent and you make up a random chore for your kid to do so you can give them an allowance, but, like, with the entire nation. The most famous of these organizations was the CCC, or Civilian Conservation Corps. And men worked in this for like 6 to 12 months, planting trees, building reservoirs, and generally improving the environment. They especially worked in the Midwest that had been ravaged by dust storms. Of the $30 each man made each month, $25 of that was sent directly home to their families. And while they were working, they were given food and shelter and taught to read and write. Ironically, over 80,000 Native Americans were employed by the CCC, helping a bunch of white dudes try to undo all the damage that had been done since it was taken from them. They're like, yeah, 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 we knew this. We've known this for hundreds of years that you should plant trees to prevent the wind from kicking up dust. But then you got rid of all the trees. Anyway. Other agencies built parks, playgrounds, airports, roads, basically anything the government could justify as necessary infrastructure that could pay people to work. And one of these programs alone spent $1 billion in five months. So did it work? Uh, Sort of. The goal of the first new deal was just to stop further decline. And it definitely did that. But most of these government jobs were temporary, and even though the government created 2 million somewhat temporary jobs, there were still 10 million people that were unemployed. But what the First New Deal really did was it inspired hope, and it restored faith in the nation. People kind of calmed down, and at least felt like there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. And as always happens with politics, almost everyone found something wrong with it. Ironically, left-wing Democrats felt like they hadn't gone far enough. They wanted more direct redistribution of wealth and power from the rich to the middle class and the poor. They wanted to go sort of democratic socialist. FDR was faced with some primary challengers who campaigned on ideas like nationalizing the entire banking system or just directly paying citizens over 60 a pension. Although none of them had a real chance, some of the policies mobilized new voting blocks for the Democrats, especially older people, retirees, for the first time. On the other side, conservatives felt like this was just way too far, and it put way too much regulation on businesses that would now never be able to build themselves back up. And they were concerned about FDR's deficit spending, meaning he just kind of abandoned the idea that we needed a balanced budget, and he just borrowed money to pay for programs that we needed right then. In some cases, the Supreme Court agreed that FDR had overstepped. In 1935, a few of his agencies were struck down as unconstitutional, and FDR started to get afraid that his whole New Deal might fall apart. So he needed to keep moving fast to get as much legislation passed before he lost his momentum and his support, and eventually, potentially, the 1936 election. Act 3, the Second New Deal. So in 1935, FDR demanded that Congress come in over the summer and told them they could not go home until they passed his new bills. Uh, The Second New Deal went beyond just trying to stop the decline of the Depression, but it looked into the future to try to build a stronger economy and a social safety net to prevent collapses like this one later on. The Works Progress Administration was the largest public works program of the New Deal, the WPA. It spent $11 billion to build 650,000 miles of road, 125,000 public buildings, 853 airports, 124,000 bridges, and 8,000 parks. Look up WPA sites in your city. I guarantee there are at least a few. And my favorite part of the WPA is a thing called Federal Project Number One. Despite its less-than-creative name, it was actually a government program to finance artists, musicians, writers, and actors to just create stuff. They were paid by the federal government to write plays and paint murals and set up orchestras. And this is an amazing moment where the government is recognizing the power of art to lift people up in critical times. Even more amazing is the effort within this project to send people across the country to record the stories of people who had been enslaved. This is just... Fascinating. So recognizing that the last generation of African-Americans who had been born into bondage, they were quickly dying off. The government funded the Slave Narrative Project, which went on to collect more than 2,300 first-person accounts from previously enslaved Americans. Obviously, as a history teacher, this is my favorite part of the New Deal. A few other groundbreaking acts included the Wagner Act, which guaranteed workers the right to unionize and bargain collectively. It also established the National Labor Relations Board to oversee factory elections, to investigate employers accused of unfair practices and arbitrate disputes. And this led to a burst of union activity, empowered by this show of support from the government. And union membership tripled in the 30s, from 3 to 9 million people. The most famous and long-lasting action taken as part of the New Deal was the Social Security Act. This was a precedent-breaking piece of legislation that created the first entitlement program in American history. Basically, it's not welfare. It's not relief. It's a payment that all Americans are entitled to, guaranteed by the government, because they pay into it during their working years. And today we understand the issues with Social Security, mainly that the government eventually started taking money out of this fund to pay for other programs and, like, Boomers are straining the system because so many of them are retiring at the same time. But that shouldn't dilute the historical significance of the act. Whatever your current thoughts on Social Security are, this was one of the most expansive and impactful pieces of legislation of the 20th century. And it's a really great example of FDR giving in a little bit to those more progressive uh, challengers in the Democratic Party who said he hadn't gone far enough. This is one of those arguments that I make where people say like third party candidates can't make a difference or... Um, unlikely challengers and primaries can't make a difference because, yeah, it's unlikely that they'll win and become the candidate or become the president, but they can then have a platform and they can use that platform to kind of move certain issues forward. So in this way, uh, what happened with FDR when he was getting reelected is very similar to what happened in the Democratic Party in 2016, where Bernie ran. And even though he ultimately didn't win the candidacy. Uh, his ideas are now a huge part of the Democratic platform. That's kind of what happened here as well. So at this point, on that note, I would like to let you in on an ongoing conversation between me and my dad about FDR. My, My dad is a wonderful, intelligent man who sarcastically identifies himself as a, quote, capitalist pig. He's, in fact, a moderate conservative who just enjoys saying things that makes his daughter roll her eyes, and he's quite good at it. And so we've had more than one conversation about FDR that goes something like this. Rick, FDR was a socialist. Me, no, FDR saved us from socialism. Rick, are you crazy? If it weren't for World War II, he would have spent all that money building a socialist country modeled on Europe, and we would have sunk into even more debt. Emily. Well, World War II did happen, but the legislation he enacted satisfied most of those who might have otherwise pushed the country further to the left because they were desperate during the Depression. He basically cherry-picked some parts of the socialist agenda and put them under a capitalist system to appease both sides. Rick. And then no one was happy. Emily. Right. But no one overthrew the government either. Anyway, both sides, me and my dad, are right to some extent. Pick pick whichever one makes more sense to you. But either way, FDR is the most important Democratic president ever. Like, I think I'm comfortable making that statement. In the same way that Harding and Hoover set the Republican Party on its path toward laissez-faire economic policy and rugged individualism, FDR set up the modern Democratic coalition that would steer its party toward the progressive liberalism we see today. Essentially, almost everyone in the country liked and benefited from some aspect of FDR's New Deal, except rich white guys. Their businesses became more regulated and they had to pay more taxes and provide more benefits for their workers. So they became the heart of the Republican Party, the opposition. But really, in the 30s, most other people had a good reason to vote Democrat, and mostly they did. Working class white people benefited a ton from the New Deal. Workers, including immigrants in the cities, got more power through labor unions, while farmers got support that brought them out of debt. Progressives were happy about the social safety nets that were built, including the Fair Labor Standards Act that finally abolished child labor. <laughs> and really only because all those kids were taking jobs away from unemployed adults. Oh, God. It established a minimum wage and a 44-hour work week, things that progressives have been fighting for for decades. Intellectuals appreciated the philosophical shift to what's called Keynesian economics and the support for the arts and education, African-Americans were included in most of these New Deal support systems. And so this is the moment that we see many Black people finally abandoning the Republican Party of Lincoln to start voting Democrat. So if you remember how in the 19th century, political parties were really confusing, right? Democrats and Republicans were in a lot of ways kind of totally flipped. The 20s and 30s is when they kind of flip themselves into the system and the binary that we see a lot today. They're not totally finished, they're still a little bit confusing, but essentially what we start to get after the 20s from Harding and Coolidge and Hoover is the Republicans being the party of capitalism, laissez-faire, hands-off, the government should not get too involved in the economy, and it's, it's really, really supported by business owners. Whereas the Democratic Party, which is going to dominate politics for the next few decades because it has this massive coalition, this is the party now of FDR that is of big government stepping in, getting involved in the economy, getting involved in regulating business and trying to, in some ways, redistribute wealth. So we're starting, at least now, to recognize those two political parties, even though a few more shifts have to happen. So the beginning of the end of the New Deal came in 1936 when, I mean, he won in a landslide re-election. FDR tried to use his power to intimidate the Supreme Court. Oh, there's a thing called checks and balances, FDR, right? So they had just struck down his Agricultural Adjustment Act that paid farmers not to farm. And they were starting to look at two of his landmark acts, the Wagner Act, which protected labor unions, and the Social Security Act. And so FDR just casually introduced a bill in Congress that was like, Hey guys, like, the people on the Supreme Court are pretty old, right? Like, they really should probably retire when they turn 70. This whole lifetime appointment thing is garbage. So here's my idea, FDR says. For every Supreme Court justice who stays on after they turn 70, the president gets to appoint an additional justice to the Supreme Court. That sounds fair, right? That's a pretty good deal. We don't want all these like old people on the Supreme Court making decisions. And what's that? Oh, I'm the, oh, I am the president. Oh, interesting. So I guess, wow, there are a lot of sitting Supreme Court justices right now that are over 70. I didn't really think about that, but you're right. I guess, (laughs) funny, I would get to appoint six new justices to the Supreme Court right now. Whoa, well, I mean, if that's what the law says. Anyway, so this is known as the court packing plan, and it did not go over well. Like, it was clear that FDR was getting a little power-hungry, and the public responded by handing over a lot of seats to Republicans in the 1938 midterm to check his power. In some ways, FDR's intimidation worked. I mean, the Supreme Court did uphold the Wagner and Social Security Acts, and most of his New Deal remained intact, but... Uh, At that point, he didn't really have the mandate anymore, and he had to fight with a Republican Congress that didn't want to pass all of his legislation like the earlier Congresses had. So it's at this point that I would like to make a slightly controversial observation. This is just my take on history, and I'm sure there are people who have studied way more about this time period who might tell me why this is either genius and right or not right at all. But from my view... It's important to understand that throughout the world, the 1930s were the decade of rising totalitarian governments, right? Governments where like one party ruled and controlled the entire state. So we have Stalin was grabbing control and using the communist party to reorganize the entire Soviet economy. A guy named Hitler was working his way through the democratic process to gain more and more political power to advance his agenda. And it kind of seems crazy to think about this now, but at the time, there were those in the United States looking at FDR and wondering, like, is he doing the same thing? Right? I mean, the Democratic Party was so dominant in the first half of the 1930s that they effectively could do whatever they wanted. And FDR was totally taking more power for the executive branch than any president had ever done before, like, by far. I mean, sure, he was doing it for the good of the nation, but I mean, that's exactly what other totalitarian leaders said at the time. So, This fear is going to be made even worse when FDR breaks with tradition and runs for a third term in 1940 and then a fourth term in 1944. I mean, in hindsight, we understand that FDR did not become a dictator in the way that others were around the globe, but also he died in office. So like, we don't actually know what he would have done when World War II was over. Like, and and really in a lot of ways, I mean, he was abusing his power. Now, we look back and say, oh, it's fine because he was doing it to try to put in these reforms. But, I mean, a totalitarian state just means a state where one party is effectively in control of the entire government. Now, in a lot of places, that then becomes the only legal party, which was not true in the United States. But when we look at the impact of FDR on future decades in American history, Democrats are going to dominate national politics for a very, very long time, really until the 1970s. And so, This is a much scaled down version and I'm in no way comparing FDR to like Stalin and Hitler, but he is of that time and I do think we can understand his presidency within that context, so. Okay, so what is the legacy of the New Deal? Was it good? Was it bad? Why is the New Deal a big deal? FDR changed the relationship between the American people and the federal government. For better or for worse, it depends on your view on that. But for the first time in history, people began to look to the federal government to potentially solve daily problems they were facing, whether that was their housing situation, their job, their bank account. And the federal government began to intervene in the economy way more and regulate industry significantly more than they ever had before. In a lot of ways, one through-line of American history is the rise of the federal government, specifically the increasing power of the president. If you remember that the Articles of Confederation didn't even have a president, and it gave the federal government, like, no power. They couldn't even tax people. I mean, George Washington saw his role as president as mostly symbolic, and the Founding Fathers in general believed the executive branch should be the weakest. Andrew Jackson expanded presidential power, but mostly by just straight-up ignoring the Constitution. And in times of extreme crisis, like with Lincoln during the Civil War, or now FDR in the Great Depression, the president became an important leader who took drastic measures to solve the crisis. And the United States is a country based on the legal idea of precedent. Once something has been established once as legal or constitutional, it's kind of assumed to be acceptable in the future. So our modern relationship with the government was really founded during the 1930s, and it's going to continue to expand. For now, most Americans still see the federal government's realm as specifically about economic issues, but later, during another decade of crisis, the 1960s, its role is going to expand even more into social issues. So, love him or not, FDR was the most prolific president in history because, of course, the New Deal was just the domestic side of his presidency. And in fact, the New Deal wasn't really the thing that got us totally out of the Depression. It stopped the bleeding and it set up measures to prevent something like it from happening again. But what really pulled us out of the 1930s and shot us into the spotlight as the most powerful economy in the world was World War II. That's right, FTR's not satisfied, which is drastically reorganizing almost every aspect of socioeconomic policy at home. He also wants to save the world. Now that I'm saying it out loud, like he may have had a slight God complex. to be continued. for listening as always please check out my patreon page where you can get extra episodes addressing current events and if you haven't already please subscribe to my youtube channel because i'm starting to post a lot more content there as well including most recently a really fun bonus episode where i talked with my former ap us history teacher about aaron burr while she is standing in the field where he shot hamilton so thanks for your support thanks for listening see you next time